is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, no U-turn on defence cuts. I still think that the essential judgement of the SDSR was correct. And how did the special forces operation in the Libyan desert go so badly wrong? It hasn't been their finest hour. The uh, arrival of somebody in the middle of the night, surrounded by apparently SAS men and so on. A strange way of introducing yourself to a new regime. Headlines. is considering a U-turn on the defence review in the light of the continuing crisis in Libya. It's running out of time. The formal decommissioning of HMS Ark Royal is about to begin as more questions are asked about the cuts announced last autumn. Days after the botched SAS mission to the country, the Foreign Secretary William Hague and Defence Secretary Liam Fox appeared before the Commons Defence Select Committee. So has the crisis in Libya highlighted failings in the Strategic Defence and Security Review? Liam Fox says, if anything, it's proved they got it right. Had we decided to go for a Fortress Britain policy uh, and pretend that we would not be affected by uh, events elsewhere and therefore we could retreat into our shell, um, we would not have had uh, the appropriate responses to what we've seen. And I I still think that the essential judgment um, of the SDSR was therefore correct. Bertie also conceded Britain can't resolve this kind of international problem alone. There has to be a proper balance between what we in terms of international obligations, are willing to do and capable of doing unilaterally as the United Kingdom and what we're doing in terms of our wider alliances. And I think there are very key questions here um, and will be emerging in coming weeks for NATO. Uh, As a defence organisation, is it it operating successfully? In particular, where it has assets, does it have the political will to deploy them? We do not um, run the world and we're not its policemen. But in partnership with other countries, we should be able to have greater effect than we do. And that's not because Britain is unwilling to deploy its assets. That point was echoed by William Hague, who says events in North Africa and the Middle East are an opportunity as well as a challenge. We do think that recent events in North Africa and the Middle East require a major change in how Europe works with that region. And we would ask other international partners to do the same, uh, to act as a magnet for positive change in those countries. 
But after ministers repeated support for the idea of a no-fly zone over Libya, the committee's chairman, James Arbuthnot, warned Liam Fox they're making promises they can't keep. To the extent that we are not able to deploy British assets, can I suggest we reduce our rhetoric to those assets that we personally can deploy? Oh, ambitions and deployments should always be very closely titrated. While Liam Fox is insisting the decisions taken last autumn were the right ones, 50 leading military figures, welfare groups, academics and politicians have signed a letter calling on David Cameron to think again. Among them is former Royal Marines Commander Major General Julian Thompson. He's in the studio with me today. Hello, General. Thanks for your time today. The letter says the security landscape has radically changed since the review was announced. What are your biggest concerns? My biggest concern is is that the SDSR didn't really cope or cater for the unexpected, particularly the fact that it took away the carrier and harrier. So what it actually is saying is we can't do an operation which is beyond the range of land-based air. So you immediately cut the the options open to you. Uh, Pulled into sharp focus by Libya? Pulled into sharp focus by Libya. At the moment, of course, they're saying it doesn't matter. You don't need a carrier there because you can mount uh, the no-fly zone or whatever they're going to do from land-based air. Well, we'll see. It depends how far away you try and do it from. So far, though, the Defence Secretary has said that what's happening and the way we're reacting in Libya proves the strategy is right, that we are adaptable. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? (laughs) Because to an extent, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But as far as getting people out of there, that's worked okay. Sure, that worked okay. That's all you want to do. But what's next? Watch this space, is what what I'd say. How are they going to play the next bit? We don't know. It seems there's little chance of a U-turn on the Strategic Defence and Security Review. If the government were to change its mind, is it the carriers you think they should be changing their mind yes, on? Yes, and what they should do is, is, is bring back the Harrier and the carrier, get rid of Tornado, which is about ten times as expensive as the Harrier, and possibly spend less money on Typhoon. That's what I'd like to see do, done. Do you think it's likely they'll make a U-turn? It doesn't look like it at the moment. I don't it? think that they will, because the politicians don't like being proved wrong, but they should do it. They should have the guts to do it. Well, also in the studio is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Hello. Uh, at the time of the SDSR, both Liam Fox and William Hague said the international community would have to work together to form strategic alliances. Um, isn't well, we've Lib- already got one. I mean, it's called NATO. I mean, that's in terms of cover- though, what they were arguing, I suppose, is that, that in terms of if we have a, a gap, if we, we, we need to share because we've made cutbacks in other areas, that we're going to have to do it more. And they're arguing, presumably, that what's happening in Libya is the occasion and the proof that that can and would happen. Yeah, but he was talking absolute nonsense when he, he said, OK, it proves Libya, for example, proves that we can do act with a smaller force. You know, you don't just bung up a few aircraft and say, oh, by the way, we've got an fl- uh, over, overfly idea. You have to do it as an organisation. Um, people say, OK, well, you can do it, let's say, from Cyprus, where you can have uh, tankers to refuel. That means you degrade your operation in Afghanistan. The whole thing stretches. They say, right, you can actually fly down from the UK because the same distance is from Cyprus. So where the overfly rights, etc., you can only do it, and you can have only been able to do it, I think, since 82. I mean, Julian's... Uh, and not Julian's war, but I mean, the war when he commanded three brigade in, in the Falklands. I suspect that was the last time that a major operation was done nationally. Even then, we relied on the Americans quite a lot for 
intelligence and also uh, quite a few uh, weapon systems. So we've, we're in NATO. Look what's going on in Afghanistan. Look what went on, if you like, in the Balkans. We need to be part of a big organization. We've always been able to. And if you like, uh, this year is the anniversary of the year when Churchill went to America and said we've got to have something called a special relationship. This was in 1945. And we've got to do that because we can no longer do things by ourselves. Indeed. Uh, and Julian, do you think that the rhetoric, therefore, that the government has been using is way beyond our capability, especially when it comes to the terms of a, uh, of a no-fly zone? No, if we couldn't do a no-fly zone on our own, there's absolutely no way we could do it on our own, because the number of airplanes... But in conjunction, even in conjunction with other Well, nations. if we were doing it with other people, yes, and uh, it would depend on, on what our uh, uh, contribution was. But there's a lot of talk about no-fly zones, and one of the things that, uh, that isn't mentioned is if... Gaddafi decides to put his own fighters up, you're going to shoot them down. People use the analogy of Iraq. That's quite wrong to say that because the Iraqis didn't have an air force and what they did have had gone to Iran. So mm. all you were worried about was surface-to-air missiles. If you're up against an air force, you've got quite a big air force. It'll be a totally different ball game to doing the Iraq no-fly zone. And yet the, uh, the defense secretary, Ian Fox, was spinning that line on the Tay program uh, today. And nobody challenged him. So are they even right to be talking about a no-fly zone, do you think? No, it's not a question of the goes right. I mean, you, you, you come up with a load of options. Um, the key to this is, is twofold. Uh, is the 2005 United Nations World Summit. There, the ground rules, if you like, the terms of reference, almost the rules of engagement in this sort of thing, were sorted out. 183 countries signed a bit of paper and said, this is what we would probably have to do. We then balanced that... You know, the, the very difficult thing about the moral right against the strategic values, etc. And by the way, Libya's got oil and all that sort of thing. There is the ground rules. What's going on now? Not the ground rules. If you really want to know what's important at the moment, yes, the NATO meeting is going on today and going on uh, tomorrow. But it's also true, the most important part of it is, is on Saturday at the weekend, when the Arab League will be meeting. You've got to talk to these guys. And then you get to the bigger idea. And here is the one which they don't consider yet, haven't considered, but they're going to have to when the Arab League meets. Why should we be opposing Gaddafi? Mm. Gaddafi is the president of a country which is in revolt. And he's putting down the revolt in his country. Now, we may not like it. We think morally reprehensible. But why are we opposing him with such certain right Go back to 2005, the United Nations things, which we all signed up to. They're the ground rules. He's got a right to defend his country. More of which, I'm sure, at a later date. But another signatory to that letter to the Prime Minister is Colonel Clive Fairweather, who spent 34 years in the army, including five tours with the SAS, some in the Middle East. Feelings are running very high amongst senior commanders, which is why we wrote that letter, because what has actually occurred here and is occurring in front of our eyes is, in their opinion in my opinion and the opinion of quite a few observers, a very major change in the world, as big a change as the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Except this time, not only are we seeing the, the bricks falling down, but we have no idea uh, just how far the, the, the repercussions of what's going on in the Middle East uh, is likely to spread. So which decisions would you like to see reversed? Well, I think everyone finds it very perverse indeed that we indecently scrapped the Harriers and Ark Royal, uh, 
I mean, if you look at even at this present mission, uh, everything's having to be mounted from airfields, which are some distance away um, and which later may uh, cause problems to have permission to operate off if things become hot. Uh, whereas a carrier uh, with ha Harriers would have been av available to give back up. Uh, and that we could still look at that up ahead. The aircraft haven't yet been flogged off to the Americans. The carrier is still in one piece. But I'd imagine that there's only two or three weeks to go before it'll be too late. Turning to events concerning the Special Forces, as a former Deputy Commander of the SAS, how embarrassing are the events in Libya which saw Special Forces held by the rebels they were supposed to be trying to help? What I don't think people realise is that, you know, there are many successful SAS missions, uh, many missions that don't even make the headlines, but now and again, uh, when things go wrong, normally around communications, uh, it can be very embarrassing indeed to be uh, displayed all over the, the world communications to have got it wrong. Colonel Clive Fairweather, well, that Special Forces mission to Libya dominated the headlines for all the wrong reasons. And it's led to questions about how the government's handling the crisis in Libya and the wider region. Paul Osborne reports. A highly secret mission but one that became highly embarrassing for the British government. They were withdrawn after a serious misunderstanding about their role, leading to their, leading to their temporary detention. It was apparently an attempt to make contact with Libyan rebels in the east of the country, only they didn't tell them they were coming. Two diplomats and what's thought to be six special forces were dropped by helicopter, but when weapons, maps and multiple passports were found, they were detained by the very rebels they were meant to be talking to. Cue an embarrassing phone conversation between Britain's ambassador to Libya and a rebel leader. We, we sent a small group just to find if, if there was a hotel, if everything was working and there was somewhere they could stay and work uh, when we get our group um, organised. Actually, they, they made a, a big mistake with, with coming with, in, uh, with a helicopter, I think, in, uh, in an open area. Labour has accused the government of serial bungling over Libya. Oliver Miles is a former British ambassador in the country. I don't think it's been very brilliant. I think it hasn't been their finest hour. Um, and, of course, we've had this um, curious business of the uh, arrival of somebody in the middle of the night, surrounded by, apparently, SAS men and so on. seemed to me to be a strange way of introducing yourself to a new regime, if that's really what, the, what we were trying to do. I authorised such a mission to be made to put a diplomatic team into eastern Libya, as I explained, with protection. Ministers must have confidence in their judgments, as I do, and, and must take full ministerial responsibility. Well, despite the criticism, former SAS soldier Robin Horsfall says the operation was a success. We've put very brave people at great risk to go into a very volatile situation, stamp their feet on the ground and say, look, we're here and we want somebody to speak to us. We want to establish who the leaders are and they've actually succeeded in doing that. And Conservative MP Bernard Jenkin thinks William Hague's critics have got it wrong. When you compare it with the scale of the mismanagement of the conflict in Iraq, I mean, I went to Basra just after the invasion and the soldiers were already saying, well, what are we meant to do now? And, of course, there was no plan. I don't recall a single Labour minister resigning over the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq, which was a, a massive cosmic disaster compared to the difficulties that William Hague is facing at the moment. So let's just keep this in proportion. Britain says it still plans to send diplomats to meet the Libyan rebels. Next time, though, they'll probably use the front door. 
Paul Osborne reporting. Well, Major General Julian Thompson and Christopher Lee are still with me in the studio. Uh, General, British journalists are simply driving into Benghazi. Why on earth did the MOD think it needed to send a helicopter with an SAS team unannounced in the dead of night? But it wasn't the MOD who wanted to do it anyway. It was the FCO who wanted to send someone in to meet, we don't know who, to talk about... Uh, the, the way ahead with the rebels. And this is a perfectly normal way to do it, to take special forces. There's nothing surprising about that decision. There's nothing surprising about it at all. It just went wrong, and these things, as Clive Featherweather said, occasionally go wrong. And it wasn't the fault of the SAS team, it was the fault of the people who sent them there and set it up in the first place. Christopher, William Hayes called it a misunderstanding. How much damage do you think that's done? I don't think it's done any damage whatsoever. I mean, the whole thing has been a fiasco so far. That's just added to it. The biggest damage is probably to the credibility of William Hayes. And I can think of three cabinet ministers at the moment who are sharpening the knives. They want his job, including a very, very senior guy in Whitehall when the whole thing is becoming farcical. You think he's in danger, do you? Uh, I think he's in danger in the long term. But this is not the William Hague that used to stand at the dispatch box and tear up um, David Miliband into small pieces. There is something very strange going on here, and um, I sort of feel sorry for the fella, except that, you know, a cock-up is a cock-up. Well, while the SAS mission ended in embarrassment, other military operations in Libya have been more successful. Flight Lieutenant Stuart Patton volunteered to rescue British oil workers from the desert. He hit the headlines when it emerged he used a black-and-white Google Maps printout to guide his Hercules to his rendezvous point. He told our reporter Claire Sadler how the mood changed once they were on the ground. We heard word from the people that were doing our force protection that um, the ground situation was potentially deteriorating, that maybe someone was trying to block us in. I heard that via the loadmaster saying, uh, you need to go, uh, and I could hear the other guys saying that over his microphone too, and we didn't waste any time. From then on, we just uh, went. Your journey out of, out of uh, Libya then, I assume, went without a hitch, did it? Uh, yeah, very quietly. Um, you never quite um, want to assume that everything's going to be okay. You're obviously elated to have got your passengers on board, and you just hope that you're going to get them to where you're going. So we all kind of sat quite quietly trying to read the situation and obviously listening for the feedback from AWACS. Uh, and as we hit the Maltese airspace and landed and um, shut down, you know, the big feeling of relief comes over that you've got your job done and, you, you know, you've, you've got the people out. Your second mission, again, was another success. And then you were then asked the following day to do a, a third mission. How did that feel? Were you, were you quite surprised? Yeah, absolutely surprised, just because uh, you don't expect to, you know, do this once, to do it three times was unreal. But I'm um, very glad to go again, you know. I'm completely excited and hoping that we would get the job done as well as we had done in the past two days. But as I understand it, on this mission, another Hercules had, did actually take some damage. And I, I understand that you, you heard about that. How did that affect you and the rest of the crew? Well, you're constantly aware that there might be a risk to the airplane. You have to go into those sorts of situations alive to that. Uh, when we heard the word that the aircraft had been damaged, well, um, obviously it kind of brings things into sharp focus. And for a while, everyone's kind of nervous. But ultimately, you knew that was something you were risking. And you just kind of want to get the job done and get the people out safe. Flight Lieutenant Stuart Patton. Meanwhile, HMS York has now resumed its planned mission in the South Atlantic after its trip to Benghazi. But on a stop-off in Gibraltar, her commanding officer, Simon Staley, told BFBS's Mario Cristostomo about the ship's role in the Libyan crisis. The difficulty was making sure we had the right assets in theatre to be able to conduct the tasking, but also having them in the right place. And, and like I say, that was changing so very, very quickly in both the west and east of Libya. What occupied your mind most? 
coast as you were approaching Benghazi port. The uncertainty was I'd never been into that port before. Uh, there were extremely strong winds blowing um, off the jetty and, uh, and I was having to get the ship alongside um, and we didn't know the uh, what was actually going to be happening on the jetty when we first got there. It was quite chaotic scenes with a lot of uh, entitled peoples waiting to get onto ferries um, and, and clearly a lot of debris left over from uh, vessels that had been in there beforehand. Was there a Libyan military presence in evidence when you arrived? There was. There was um, a, a Libyan army presence initially um, who were providing an element of security in the port itself. Now clearly it's under you know, a different control as it is at the moment um, but they were, uh, were very good and, and were very professional. The humanitarian aid was, was our prime mission. Secondary to that was the recovery of entitled peoples uh, from the country, people with um, certainly UK passports uh, and others from other countries that the FCO deemed appropriate at the time. We brought nearly, uh, nearly 50 people out of Libya and brought them safely back to Malta for onward transit. What was their frame of mind when you picked them up? Uh, they were clearly anxious. They were hugely relieved that, uh, that we'd got in. Um, they'd obviously been notified some hours beforehand uh, that they got there. And, and they'd come from different, you know, different places within Libya. Some had been travelling um, for long hours from some 250, 300 miles out into the desert. Uh, and others had come from much closer from within the cities where I think you know, the, the, the exposure they'd had to, to the ongoings was, was quite extreme. So they arrived... Um, uh, both agitated but, but hugely relieved, I think, that they were about to be getting out of the country. HMS York's commanding officer, Simon Staley. Sit-rep. With Still to come this week, as China boosts its influence in Afghanistan, America's under pressure over civilian deaths. We have been working extremely hard to avoid civilian casualties. I would also like to offer President Karzai uh, my personal apology. As the stalemate continues in Libya, world leaders are still trying to figure out what they should do next. Britain's still pushing for a no-fly zone, and while the White House remains more cautious, President Obama is now warning Libyan officials they'll be held to account for the violence. I want to send a very clear message to those who are around Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, It is their choice to make uh, how they operate uh, moving forward, uh, and they will be held accountable uh, for... Uh, whatever violence uh, continues to take place there. In Brussels over the next couple of days, there'll be meetings of NATO and EU ministers to discuss their response to the crisis in Libya. Major General Julian Thompson still with me in the studio alongside Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, Britain's still pushing or the options for that no-fly zone. Do you think there's any evidence that they're winning the argument? Uh, it's not so much that the UK is pushing for it. The UK is saying, look, this is one of the options. Um, the Americans have been far more cautious about it, but this is a NATO meeting, and then it's NATO's got to decide it. One of the things we're going to see is increased surveillance. Now, at the moment, the E3As, the AWACS, are flying, well, they've been flying 10-hour uh, patrols. That's going to be increased, I think, at this meeting to 24 hours. It's going to be a constant uh, patrol. There will be uh, what we used to have as uh, sort of combat air patrols as well, flying the Mediterranean. It's that sort of pressure, but nobody is going to say, OK, we're going to do it. Yes, yeah, those 24-hour patrols, um, what can they actually do? What can they achieve? Well, you actually sort of spot... The, did you hear in, uh, with, with the interview with the, with the Hercules pilot, he said we were listening to the AWACS traffic. Yes. And it was that, the E3As are AWACS, Airborne Warning and Control Systems, and they are monitoring... 
because they can. They can monitoring everything that's going on, uh, very much of the military traffic, i.e. the signalling that's going on, some of the movements as well that's going on in Libya. These are the people that are the eyes and ears. It's like a great big operations room flying in the sky. If you've got that 24 hours going on, everything you need to do really ought to be coming out. You will actually have quite a senior, probably a Julian, a one-star, two-star, in one of those things when they're flying, I think, as well. And that becomes very important. It's, it's, a, it's a huge headquarters flying in the sky. So they can tell that the, the Hulks which way to fly. Don't mm. go that way, go that way. Mm. Yeah. And, and should there actually eventually be a no-fly zone? Colonel Gaddafi is saying that he would encourage people to take up arms. Uh, is, is there a chance it's just going to inflame the whole situation? Well, it depends what he means by taking up arms. They've already taken up arms. What he think he means is that, that his air force will shoot down aeroplanes that try and enforce the no-fly zone. So he will then get into an air-to-air combat situation. And so it'll be very interesting to see how the NATO air forces do against Gaddafi's air force, uh, whether they lose a lot of people, and then, therefore, what happens next. All right, Julian Thompson, thanks very much for joining us in the studio today. News, discussion and analysis. And analysis. This is Zipweb on BFES. While the world's attention continues to focus on Libya, in Oman there have been unprecedented protests. So far, people there aren't demanding regime change, but more jobs, cheaper food and an end to corruption. But the law forbids any criticism of Oman's ruler, Sultan Kubas. Kabus bin Said, who's been in power for 40 years. Uh, Christopher, the UK has strong links with Oman. How important are the protests there? Uh, very important indeed. It's the first time we've actually seen it. And Sultan Kabus uh, is very much the UK's man. I mean, he was at Sandhurst. In fact, Julian Thompson has just left the studio. He was the guy that actually sent the signal that put Sultan Kabus into power. It is very strong. We, we were there in, in the early 70s where we fought against what is now Yemen, but the um, uh, People Demo- People's Demo- Democratic Republic of Yemen, the PDRY, we stopped him being overthrown then. There is a base there. We've supplied a lot of his officers. It's the British officers attached to the Sultan's armed forces. Um, the, the southern, the Dofar Brigade has been commanded by the British. It is ours as far as we're concerned. It's our major concern. That's why we're particularly concerned that the protests that are going on should not succeed. All right, Christopher, stay with us. The U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates has been in Afghanistan this week while he talked up ISAF progress in the country. He also faced Hamid Karzai's anger over growing civilian casualty numbers. The deaths of nine children in an airstrike triggered anti-American protests in Kabul and Mr. Gates has tried to defuse the row. We have been working extremely hard, first under General McChrystal and now General Petraeus, to avoid civilian casualties. Coalition forces, despite this incident, have done a much better job over the past couple of years. Even so, I would also like to offer President Karzai my personal apology. 
A UN report says more than 2,700 civilians were killed in Afghanistan last year, but blames the Taliban and other insurgents for three quarters of those deaths. Meanwhile, concerns growing over China's intentions in Afghanistan. Works continuing on a highway linking the two countries, and Russia's apparently worried about the links between Beijing and Kabul. This week, the International Institute for Strategic Studies reported that China's surge in defence spending means it's rapidly catching up with the United States. Martin McCauley is an expert on China at University College London. He's on the line now. Martin McCauley, thanks for your time. It can't be a coincidence that as the US and its partners talk about leaving Afghanistan, China steps up its presence there. No, it's not a coincidence at all because if you look at Pakistan and China, they are basically allies and they have a strategic interest in keeping India out of, uh, of Afghanistan. And China also has economic interests in Afghanistan. They're already involved in developing a large copper mine, and uh, they would like to expand that over the whole of uh, Afghanistan, and there's oil and gas in the north and so on. Uh, And China actually has a border, a very small border with Afghanistan, and they're building up that road uh, so that they will have direct access. And Pakistan, they're building up uh, at Gwadar support uh, it is being developed by the Chinese, but they also have a naval base, and they want an oil pipeline to run there, from there through Pakistan into the Karakoram Highway and into Xinjiang. So Pakistan and China are coming together. They have a common interest in really bringing these two countries together. And the key question is what will happen if, for instance, the Taliban in Pakistan overthrew uh, the government uh, in Islamabad? Will the Chinese then intervene? And how worried should Russia be about all of this? Very worried because uh, they fear they're going to be pushed out of Central Asia. Uh, economically, uh, China is doing very well, uh, but uh, the Russians really fear. Say, let's say the Taliban takes over in Afghanistan, uh, then there's a very porous border, Afghan-Tajik border, uh, and Tajikistan has been very concerned about it. Something like 5,000 mosques have suddenly appeared. They're very concerned about Islam in, in Tajikistan. And obviously, uh, Russia would then fear Islamist uh, people moving into Central Asia, and then from Central Asia, they'd move into Russia proper. And exactly how worried should the US and Britain be about China's interests in Afghanistan? China basically wants a secular regime. They don't want, uh, they don't want uh, an Islamic regime. So on, on, from that point of view, uh, China really has the same interests as Britain and the US. But China wishes to exclude Britain and the US from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Central Asia. And that is the long-term goal. All right, Martin McCauley, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher Hamakarzai doesn't seem to be too worried about um, how his contacts with China are perceived by the US or Britain. No, why should he be? I mean, he's getting too much out of China and anyway doesn't care about us anyway. Um, what's interesting, that meeting that's going on in, in, in Brussels, being going on today, today, tomorrow it meets also, Karzai's there. Mm. There's something called the Joint NATO-Afghan Transition Board. On the 21st, that's Monday week, 21st this month, it's Afghan New Year. What happens at that meeting tomorrow on Friday and then what happens between now and the 21st of March is Karzai will make the great speech, because it's National Day, he'll make the great speech on what's the future, and that future will include the future of British forces. We ought to listen. All right, Christopher, thank you very much, and also thank you to Major General Julian Thompson for his time today. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now.
on DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS. BFBS. 